Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from AltaSpeak Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... I will take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Shaw 1, broken. Actually has been for a couple of years, but now the power, computing power, is within your grasp. Uh, this attack, this new attack that is available now, is much less complex and cheaper than previous attacks. And it places the attacks within reach of, quote-unquote, ordinary attackers. Now, we'll get to what ordinary attackers mean and what ordinary resources are defined as, because I think they're still stretching the definition of ordinary just a little bit. But SHA-1 should not be used in any security protocol where some sort of collision resistance is to be expected from the hash function. Now, if you're not familiar with with what collision resistance is, collision resistance uh, is a function of a hash. And so a hash is considered to have collision resistance or is resistant to collision if it's hard to find the inputs that hash to the same output. So, so in other words, if you have a given hashed password and you're guessing... Uh, what that password is, it should be very difficult to figure out what two pieces of input were used to generate the output. Fairly simple, right? That's how encryption works. And SHA-1 is no longer considered to be collision resistant. And it hasn't been for some time. Again, this, this information is not necessarily new, but previously it required hundreds of thousands of dollars for equipment in order to be able to execute this attack. And uh, the article goes on to say, collision generation required high amounts of computing power. Current attack is much simpler as well described. So it's much more dangerous. SHA-1 collision descriptions are described as quite long, but the crack is the first really feasible to use. In practice, the achieving attack takes computational horsepower and processing resources. They said that the researchers paid $756,000 for their trial and error process in computing power. But they say that the cost could be as low as $50,000. Or using in more advanced GPUs and some known attack methodology, you might be able to get it down to as low as 11000 Now, my take on it is, is pretty simple. Obviously, any time um, we have an attack that is successful against a given encryption algorithm, we want to stop using that encryption algorithm as soon as possible because computing generally gets more powerful, right? As time goes on, it's Moore's Law. So what is possible today for $11,000 is going to be available for $5,000 tomorrow and 2500 bucks after that, and eventually you'll be able to do it on you know, the Raspberry Pi Generation 11 or whatever. So it's important to note that you should not be using SHA-1 if you were, but I, I respectfully disagree with the researchers' assertion that eleven thousand dollars puts us in in into the the hands of of average people, certainly a sponsored attack. Certainly, uh, if there if the, you know if it was a corporation that was hiring somebody to do some nefarious things, obviously those kinds of things are in realm. But for the average person, I don't know many people have eleven thousand dollars hanging around uh, 
um, to crack into stuff. And so I would still say it's you're not low-hanging fruit if you're using SHA-1. I would tell you that in any security situation, and this is what we tell clients, analyze your threat vector. Analyze your threat vector and look what your threat model is. If your threat model is you work for a banking company and you believe that you have a target on your back and the potential jackpot is $10 million, well, then an $11,000 attack vector is something that you should take very seriously and you should do what you need to do to mitigate. But if you're, you know, Jimmy Lipper and you're sitting at home on your uh, $250 Chromebook connected to the internet, the, you know, all of these, or SHA-1 is used in a lot of uh, a very well-known um, schemes, right? GNU-PG uses it, OpenSSL uses it, Git uses it, and the article incorrectly states that GNU-PG is no longer using SHA-1 or it's not available. In fact, uh, looking at version 2. Dot, uh, do I have it here? I wrote it down. Looking at uh, at version two something two dot two I think it it definitely shows SHA one as being an available uh, an available uh, algorithm so uh, certainly something you'd want to move off of um, one of the other things that I think is important to point out is the the way that this attack is carried out so you have to understand you have to have uh, access to the user's LAN connection because you're going to have to sniff traffic in order for this to work and so. Anytime it's out on the internet, if you don't have access to the ISP's switches, you're not going to be able to mirror a port and capture that traffic. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, so you're going to need access to the user's LAN. Um, additionally, uh, more often than not, a lot of remote workers, a lot of people where you might wind up in a situation where you would have access to the same LAN, i.e. a coffee shop, a Starbucks, a McDonald's, whatever... A lot of people are now using their own encrypted proxies, or they're using Tor, or they're using a VPN, or they're SSH into their real work box that's sitting at the office. That's what we do at AltaSpeed, right? Our techs, they're out in the field, they're working, they're doing a, a bunch of stuff, but they're VPN'd or SSH'd back into a box that's actually doing the work back here at the office. And so if you were to try to initiate one of these attacks on one of our guys, it, it simply would fail because, yeah, maybe SHA-1 itself is not protected but the encryption algorithm that is creating the tunnel for all the rest of the net network traffic is so it's a somewhat limited attack vector i consider eleven thousand dollars and again their research was seven hundred fifty six thousand dollars right they're just speculating that with the modern gpus and modern attack mythology methodology you would be able to get it down to 11k i don't know if i agree uh i mean i agree that you probably can get it down to eleven thousand i just not sure that really qualifies as Hands of the average citizen. 855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Carrie calls us from California. Hey, Carrie, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thanks. Uh, I called in before, uh, and thanks for the help. You, you helped me with uh, access points that were at a house of worship. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we sent you some out or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and everything's working great now. You took care of all the problems. Yeah, those UAP AC Pros are great. Uh, let me ask you this, just for anybody, because we get people calling in all the time, and they're asking about access points and, and, and you know access point density and stuff like that. H how, how many square feet is that church? You know what? Uh, it's, I'd, I'd have to hazard a guess. I'm going to guess it's, I don't know, maybe 2,000 square feet. It's not very big. Okay, and and we we what we sent we sent like two access points out there. 
Yeah, two access points, and we've got uh, we've got them over the main auditorium, one near the very front of the auditorium, one near the back, and it's covering. It's actually covering the whole building just fine, but, but the main density is in the main auditorium, so that's where we've got uh, them situated, and it's been working great. The, we had a, two of the like the original Unify APs, mm-hmm. and they just uh, I think because they were stuck on the 2.4 gigahertz yes. spectrum, that they just weren't. They, there's all kinds of issues, and it's. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely the way. Go. And the the other part of that is too, right? Is you you get you get better radios, you have better processing power. It's just a better access point. The AC Pro. I'm well, I'm glad that worked out for you. Uh, what can I help you with today, Carrie? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was calling. Um, I'm thinking about replacing my home server. Got like a NUC hooked up to an older Drobo, and I've been and it's running uh, Ubuntu 16.04. I'm thinking about getting something new, but the problem. I live in a small place. I kind of want something that is quiet, small enough that I can kind of put it in my entertainment system. Uh, it won't generate, you know, a lot of heat. Uh, and I was looking, you know, at, at I didn't really, I would kind of not want to do like, um, you know, buy directly from my systems, but I was kind of looking into, you know, building it myself. I prefer running Linux instead of um, FreeNAS just because I'm more familiar with it. And I also use it as a very multi-purpose server, but also as, you know, some network attached storage. So sure. I just wondering if you had any um, recommendations for something, you know, an enclosure that would be relatively affordable. Um, I don't need a ton of storage. You know, right now I think I've got maybe like four terabytes total on there, and I just kind of want to grow it and just make sure it's redundant and, uh, and you know, and quiet and, and and has the performance where maybe I can put, put some VMs on there as well. So in your particular, so there's two ways I go with enclosures. Either I go for, either I go for utility, I want it to be very, you know, very functional, those kinds of things, or I want it to look nice. Sounds like in your case, aesthetics are, are kind of the primary concern. Um, I'm not too concerned about the aesthetics from like the, the, the case itself, like the front of the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more concerned about the size of it, you know, kind of keeping it on the small size. I was looking at the FreeNAS Mini, you know, something along that size or smaller. And right now, again, I've got a Drobo and a NUC side by side. Um, but really, it's it's the noise level is going to be the number one primary concern and uh, uh, and, and size probably the secondary concern. Okay. Well, if I woke up in your shoes, here's here's what I would look at. I would look at something called a home theater PC case or HTPC case. And the reason I would do that is three reasons. First off, they are specifically designed to be practically darn near silent. And of course, they're designed that way because they're designed to sit in a theater. The second thing I like about them is they look like they belong in an entertainment center. And so if you have it out in the living room or somewhere that's that's visual, you're going to anybody that walks by, it's just going to look like a cable box or an audio receiver or, or anything else. They're essentially just black square boxes. Now, fast forward down the road. Um, you start going down this process and you sound like you're a pretty technical guy and, and you're just starting on your adventure of digging into things. And I'll tell you, as one uh, one recovering home hosting addict to another, it just it gets worse, right? There's more things you start adding and eventually you decide, well, I have to have a second one and a third one and a fourth one. And eventually it, it kind of grows out of control. The nice thing about the what I like about the home theater PC cases are, and I'll have a link for, for one of my favorites in the show notes made by Silvertone. 
Um, what I like about them is you can pretty easily take them and set them on a, on a 2U rack shelf. And so if you ever get to the point where you have an actual network rack or a knock rack, um, it will fit in both places. It'll look nice in your living room and it will work out into, in the, in the rack. The other thing is like the, with the Intel nooks or some of the other bare bone PC, uh, that you can buy, there's not a lot of space in the case. And the problem with that is, uh, when you go to add drives or you want to go to add a PCI card for, because you want a second network card or something like that. Um, all of a sudden, or a capture card because you want to record TV, all of a sudden you can't do it. And so one, one of the things I like about the Silvertone case is they've literally taken a PC tower, turned it on its side, and then dressed it up like a VCR. Uh, a VCR, geez, man, I'm feeling old. Uh, dressed it up like a media player. And, and, and then they put it inside of a, inside of a cabinet. And so it, on its, if, you turn it, if you turn it vertical, as it were, um, you're looking at a regular PC case. And so your cards fit the same as you would expect them to. And other components fit the way you'd expect them to. You don't have to buy special low-profile power supplies or low-profile fans. Um, and so it's just going to work out of the box. Second thing I would suggest is when you, if you're building it yourself, choose the largest fan possible. The larger the diameter of the fan, the quieter it's going to be because the less rotations it will have to make in a, in a given time period to achieve the same amount of airflow, if that makes sense. So if you have a tiny little fan, it obviously has to spin really, really fast to get the same amount of airflow over the individual components that a very large fan would, would be able to do at a, at a slower RPM. And of course, what creates noise is the motor and, um, and obviously the, the, the ends of the, the fan blade breaking the sound barrier. You're going to actually hear uh, that. You're going to hear that. Uh, so th- that would be my recommendation. The Silvertone, uh, I think it's ML... Looks like ML04B is the one uh, that I've used in the past. I've been very happy with it. It's a really solid case. Good reviews on on Newegg, and like I say, it looks really good. Cool. Yeah. Thank. That sounds like a good suggestion. I'll have to check that out. All right. Yeah. Let me know uh, when you get that done. Uh, give me a call back. Let me know what you're doing with it. I love hearing what people are doing with self hosting. It's you know, and it's just taken off too, man. In the past year. I can't believe how many calls we get to Alta Speed Technologies in a given week or somebody saying, hey, I, uh, I want to host this thing at my business or at my home or I want to get this, uh, this thing off. In fact, we're going to talk about a self-hosting photo application that I've actually just started to use here later on in the show. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Daniel calls from Texas. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Hey Daniel, uh, what's up? First, yeah. Well, uh, first time caller and everything, but uh, so I'm uh, I'm the oldest of four siblings, um, and I'm also a university student. Uh, and all of my other siblings are at home. Uh, they also all run Linux, and none of them know all that much about it. I'm kind of a guy that was sort of always maintaining that. My dad does some stuff, but not really. Okay. Uh, doesn't know as much that much. But anyway, so now that I've, uh, it, since I've been at university, it's been kind of a, uh, interesting and we're sending signal messages back and forth and they're sending me screenshots <laughs> and everything. And I love that sometimes. Yeah. So sometimes, uh, you know, you can try to make it into a, a learning experience, but other times it uh, makes things rather tedious not just to be able to go and, you know, fix whatever it is, because I, I might know what it is or be able to figure it out, but uh, I 
it's just... It's one of those deals uh, where you keep coming across problems that you can solve in 15 minutes if you can put your hands on it, or six and a half hours if you can walk somebody through it. Yes. <laughs> Been there myself. Um, yeah, so I just was wondering if there was a secure way I could remote in from, like, you know, a totally different network. I'd looked up some things about SSH tunneling and that, but uh, it was all rather confusing, and I, uh, I, I, just, I don't know. I just didn't know where to start. Yeah, I, I hear you. What are you using for a security gateway, Daniel? What do you have for a router at your house? Uh, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Fair I enough. That, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, um, so yeah. uh, so uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll start with this. If... If you, well, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question a different way. Is uh, is it something you don't want to talk about because of a security implication, or because you just don't remember? Oh, I just don't remember. Oh, okay. All right. So, um, so here, yeah. so here's here's some general advice for you. So, to start, if it's if you don't remember, then I'm guessing it's just something you picked up at Best Buy or Office Max or whatever links this, uh, you know, uh, uh, D Link, whatever. I'm right. Pretty sure it's just what base. It's just what got sent to us when we got. Uh, when fiber got put into the neighborhood from the gotcha. provider, or so you don't want to, you don't in a, in, a, in the easiest way to to set something like this up uh, is is to do it at the security gateway level itself. Now, there's a couple different ways you can you can achieve that. the The go to tried and true method would be to go pick up uh, like a PFSense box um, from NetGate. I think they sell for like. 150 bucks something like that and it's it's a little router and the nice thing about it is daniel you just when you log into it you click on open vpn click on wizards and click uh, set up open vpn and it will walk you through it'll ask you some questions like you know what's your ip address and this that and the other and you answer all those questions and at the end you will have a little downloadable configuration file that you can plug into your to network manager if you're using Linux. They have little bundled executables that you can download if you're using Windows. They have a config file you can import to Android. And you just de- up, de- uh, upload that config file and click connect, and you'll have a VPN tunnel established. No real understanding of, of VPNs required. You just answer the questions that they ask you. That, that's, the, that's the go-to. Of course, that's going to cost 150 bucks. though. We don't want to spend money if we don't have to. So what's another way that you could set this up? Well, the other way that you could do it is you could use a VPN script. So there, is, there are open VPN scripts available on the Internet, and I will include one for you in this week's episode of the show notes. So if you go to podcast.asknoahshow.com, you can download a little bash script. And, uh, and just run that script on a spare computer that's on your network, and it will ask you a couple of questions, just like the OpenVPN wizard in PFSense will. And when you get to the end, you'll have a you'll have a, a running uh, a running uh, open uh, open uh, VPN uh, system. And same kind of idea where you'll have an OVPN config file that you'll be able to share around with family and friends, and you'll be able to uh, log in, and that will establish your connection. Now. That's only part of the problem. So we've we've sec- we have established the secure portion of your question. Now we can securely uh, route traffic between your home and school or wherever it is you are. So we've accomplished that, but we still don't have any way to control the machines. So there's a number of different ways to do that. The most uh, uh, go-to tried and true method is plain old VNC. Uh, and so if you download like Tiger VNC server and install that on the computers that you want to remotely connect to. You can simply type in the IP address, and you'll see the the desktop. Now, the downside to VNC is that there's not a lot of security behind it, so it has to be tunneled 
through some sort of tunneling technology like a VPN. Let's say you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're like, that sounds great, but I'm a college student. I don't have time for all of this. I just need to be able to download or pay for something. I need to install it and it just needs to work. What would we do then? There is a piece of software called Simple Help that I have recommended. Uh, it's primarily designed for people like me who own a business and are supporting thousands of people across the really the world. Um, and But the way that Simple Help works is you can either just do an on-demand support request or you can install their agent. And the agent will clock it will talk to the server uh, every so often and you will have the technician client on your laptop and you'll just be able to click on any computer you want and it will bring up their desktop you can also send files back and forth you can also access a terminal and execute commands remotely so all of those things uh, will work inside a simple up now the downside is you have to purchase a license for simple open i think it costs three hundred dollars uh, and so that might not be something that you want to spend money on or can afford. And then the other side of it is it's a closed source application, right? So when I tell you that it's secure, you're just going to have to take their word for it because we don't really know because nobody's ever seen the source code. Um, and then you add to that, it's a Java application. So you make up your mind, but it is a very, very powerful, easy way. It requires no firewall configuration. It requires no setup. You literally download the file and run it and, and simple help is running. And now you have access to the machines you want to install the, the agent on. It's that simple. Um, so that's a good way to go. If you're looking for the absolute cheapest, easy, I just need uh, access to it today and I don't want to spend any time on it, then I'd suggest something like TeamViewer, right? Because you can use it for personal use for free. It runs on Linux. Is it secure? Again, we'll have to take team viewers' word for it. Their customer support is not fantastic. It doesn't open you up to a whole lot of options. So there's not a lot I like about team viewer, but nonetheless, if you're looking for a quick and dirty solution, it will work. In reference, or just to make a point, in reference to your, uh, you referred to SSH tunneling. It's That's what's known in the industry as a poor man's VPN because it essentially accomplishes the same thing. We're using SSH to establish an encrypted tunnel, and then on the other side, we're simply mapping ports uh, from one side of the SSH tunnel to the other. Um, if, if, you, if you wanted to explore that route a little bit, uh, maybe in a slightly easier route, I might suggest looking at something like Tink or even WireGuard. Uh, WireGuard, for example, is a VPN technology that will allow you to just, it, you, it's as easy to set up as SSH. Uh, it just requires generating a set of keys and you have a VPN network established. Uh, and we actually have a video up. I'll link that in the show notes as well, how to get WireGuard up and running. I guessed it would take me less than 10 minutes. Uh, somewhere on the six minute mark, I realized it wasn't even going to take me that long. I spent more time explaining what I was going to do than actually setting it up. That's how fast it is. Um, so all of those are options for you. If I were to rank them in order, I would tell you the best option, if you can get, if you can make it happen, is OpenVPN. It's the most flexible. It will provide the, it provides the longest longevity. It's also the most interoperable, right? Because there are little routers you can buy on Amazon. They're like $19. They're made by a company called GINet. And uh, you can put that OpenVPN config I was talking about on that router. And uh, from anywhere in the world, when you connect that router to the internet and just plug it into an internet connection on the LAN port is going to, it's going to spit out your VPN site to site tunneled LAN. And so I keep one with me every time I travel. And if I'm in a hotel, I don't want to use the hotel Wi-Fi. certainly don't want my traffic going over theirs. Um, so I just plug that little router in or connect it to an open wireless network and 
out comes my my encrypted tunnel on the other side, and I don't have to configure anything. I don't have to touch anything. It's all contained right on that router. Those are the kind of flexibility and options you're going to have available to you with OpenVPN. Right now, that's not going to exist with things like WireGuard because it's in its infancy. Uh, SSH tunneling isn't really a solution. It's kind of a hack around, so there's not a lot of industry support for it, and certainly proprietary applications really don't do anything more than just you install them and you access. But does that give you some idea where to go? Yeah, yeah, I think I can uh, work it out then. <clears throat> okay, great. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's the number to join us. You can add your voice to the conversation, become part of the program. The Pine phone is shipping. So they released a community update, and they are going to start releasing the community updates in the middle of the month. Um, but they're at Fosdom. And so they're inviting people to come and chat and check out the Pine phone, the Pine Time, or the Pine Book, or the Pine Book Pro. Uh, new hardware announcements are going to happen at Fosdom. The Pine Book Pro is is shipping. In fact, I have mine, and it saved my bacon this weekend. So I'm going to get into that in just a little bit. Pine Book Pro, uh, they are going to add BSD options. So if you are a BSD fan, um, that's going to be an option for you coming up. Uh, the Pine Phone Braveheart Edition is going to start show out. Started shipping uh, January seventeenth, and so details on what you find in the box and what software comes preloaded. Also, important information regarding the Pine Phone shipping and tracking. Um, so little to no staff uh, available right now. So use the community form and help. Um, but we are really excited to see these devices shipping out. Now I got mine. My Pinebook Pro, and there, it, it, like I say, it saved my bacon this week. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I was uh, doing Windows 10 upgrades. As some of you are aware, Windows 10 uh, hit end of life, and so we have customers that have Windows 10 or Windows 7, and so we had to upgrade them. Now, the vast majority of our clients are running Windows 10 inside of Libvirt, and so it's it's a virtualized process, and so the work still has to happen, right? Because upgrading 7 to 10 isn't any easier in a virtualized environment, except for the fact that you, we do have snapshots. So when Windows 10 screws up, and it has a couple of times, we just roll back. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm at this site, and I'm nine and a half hours away from my home doing this install. Of course, I have a hotel, but even the hotel is 30 minutes away. And I go out to my service truck to go get something to eat. I just wanted a bag of chips and a, and a, and a, and a soda. And I, I walk out the back door. Unbeknownst to me, this particular client location, the door automatically locks behind you. So I get back and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. Well, I had the keys to my vehicle because I'd gone out to, to pick up a snack, but I had no way back in. Worse yet, my cell phone, my laptop, my backup cell phone, my hotspot are all inside, sitting in the client location. So I'm in this tiny little rinky-dink town. With uh, the, the I, I look around, there's a bar and there's a restaurant, but both of them are closed. So I can't go in there and use the phone. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And even if I could find a phone, I wouldn't exactly know who to call. I could call the, the client, but I don't really, I don't know their number off the top of my hand. And, and I, I'm just not really sure what to do. So I start thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I start digging around. I'm like, well, I need resources. What can I use to try and get myself out of this mess? And I'm looking around in my service truck and I realize 
the situation is getting worse because I have a quarter tank of gas and it's like 20 below zero out. So when the, the, the truck runs out of gas, I'm, I'm really in trouble and I'm directionally challenged. So making my way the 30 some miles back to my hotel through a series of random roads probably wasn't going to happen either. I'd probably find, wind up in like New York or something. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And here laying on the bottom of my underneath a bunch of stuff is my Pinebook Pro that I had taken along because I was figured if I had some extra time, I'd, I'd goof around with it and kind of play with it. And so I pull it out and I thought, yeah, this is, I can use this. Well, I need internet. How am I going to get internet? Well, that's okay. I have a little Edamax antenna that I take around uh, that I actually use a lot when I, when I do broadcasting on the road because that thing will pick up a Wi-Fi network from like 10 miles away. It's great. Plug that antenna in, can't find an open network anywhere. So I start driving around. War drive until I find an open network, get onto that. I won't disclose the techniques I used, but I did something else so that I could get myself some network access closer to my client location so that I could eventually get back into the building and sent a message to my wife said, hey, look up the contact information for this client. Let them know I locked myself out. I need somebody to come help me. And by the way, I may or may not have Internet, so don't don't expect to have, you know, two week communication. And uh, so I, I, I established myself a network connection closer to my client. So now I'm parked outside my client. I start thinking to myself, I don't just want to wait here while I wait for the client to come and let me back into the building. I don't want to get back to work. But how do I do that? So I discovered Libvirt does not make Vert Manager. There's not an ARM port of it. So I can't run that on my Pinebird Pro. Uh, so I start thinking, well, what else can I do? Oh, well, turns out uh, Cockpit runs on anything. So I installed Cockpit on the server opened a web browser, browsed to the IP address with port 9090, and I was back in business and resumed my Windows 10 upgrade from my Pinebook Pro uh, sitting out in my truck. And the thing is, USB. there's a couple of design things that I want to point out that made this possible, right? So first of all, the fact that it charges over Type-C, I have a Type-C charger in my car. I wouldn't have had power for the Pinebook Pro had it not been for that. The fact that it runs Linux means that I was able to just get the software I needed right from a repository. I didn't have to pay for anything or license anything. I just downloaded it and it worked, right? And the third thing is it has a 1080p display. When you're doing a bunch of remote upgrades and you're managing a bunch of different VMs, one of the things that you're counting on is the scaling function to be able to see multiple screens at one time. And so if you, if you had some crappy little 1366 by 768 display, I, well, it would have been useless to me. The fact that they put a solid display on this thing and a powerful enough processor and Linux meant it was all I needed to be able to continue to work, even in the absence of my $2,500 ThinkPad. So good job, Pinebook. And uh, more to come on the Pinebook Pro, but we have to get back to the phones. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chaz calls from New York. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how's it going in Grand Forks tonight? Hey, you know what? Pretty good. How's it going in New York? A little colder, I'm guessing, in Grand Forks than New York. I don't know. We might have you beat this time around. This is... Uh... You got to remember, this is the northern part of New York. Okay. Give me your worst. What's the temperature out there? Uh, 10. Yeah, negative one, buddy. Okay, you win. (laughs) How can I help tonight? So I finally finally listened to your insistent recommendations and uh, the insistent recommendations of people who are getting off Windows 7, and I installed KDE, and I love it. It's... I love the uh, you know setup that KDE gave for making it look like Windows 7. Mm-hmm. It's a great uh, desktop environment, but man, is it a steep learning curve. Yeah. Um, 
And I was just wondering, are there any resources that you use? Did you just use it to get used to it? Or, you know, is there anything that can kind of make it easier or anything like that that you found made you more comfortable with it over time? I'll be very honest with you, and I'm going to throw myself under the bus here, but this is the God's honest truth. When I first started using KDE, the very first thing I did was installed all of my GNOME applications. I installed GNOME disks. I installed uh, G-Edit. I, ins- I mean, everything that you can imagine from GNOME, like every application, every utility, every everything, I installed on my KDE system because I frankly... Like, I just didn't have time. I was not going to figure out what the default KDE text editor was, and I was not going to go through and retheme everything and make it look the way. I knew how to make GTK applications do what I wanted them to do, and the advantage of Linux is those applications are available to me everywhere, so I just downloaded them and used them. Now, the first thing I did, the second thing I did is I shut off all of the... All of the little things that are supposed to be cool but just drive me nuts. So, for example, I shut off all the hot corners. So when I tap a when I tap the upper right hand corner, it doesn't, you know, cascade the desktop and do stupid stuff like that. Um, shut off the desktop menus. I killed all the virtual desktops. I killed uh, the I forget what it's called spaces uh, or spaces workspaces. I killed workspaces. Um, so it wouldn't because that was switching on me. It, it just I made it as plain and dumb and simple as possible. And then over time, I've slowly over two years added that stuff back in the way that I want to add it in in a way that makes sense for me. And some of it, like the little desktop context menu thing, I still have shut off because I think it's stupid. Um, but the nice thing about KDE and the reason it the reason that literally people will have to pry it from my cold, dead fingers is because I have never. In two years, I have never sat down to my computer and said, you know, I really wish I could do, and then I can't do that thing, right? I can specify with KDE window rules when I open an application where I want it to open, how large I want it to open. I can specify what applications can open during what activity activities. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, I, I shut off activities, not workspaces. Uh, I can set it up so where I have an UltraSpeed activity and I have Ask Noah activity and I have a personal activity. And depending on what activity I have, it will allow me to run or not run certain applications. I mean, that as a business owner that only has one computer, that, that kind of stuff is just irreplaceable to me. I don't even know how I'd go back. But it was daunting and confusing and irritating when I first started. And so I I, I shut it all off and I didn't use any of it. Um but yeah, that, that, that's my recommendation. The other thing is, I it, it dawns on me, I did an episode when I first started using GNOME on tweaking GNOME and getting the most performance out of it and, and, and everything you'd want to know. And of course, that's available in the catalog at podcast.asknoahshow if anybody wants to check that out. But I should probably redo that same episode with KDE because there are so many things that make KDE the best. And I'm not just talking about it in Linux. I mean across any operating system, Windows, Mac, Linux, BSD, whatever. KDE is the best desktop environment out there, bar none. Uh, I just, I'll, t- I'll give you a perfect example of something that uh, happens on a, re- on a weekly basis, and I just go, thanks, KDE. In GNOME, or Mate, or XFCE, or Windows, or macOS, or any other application, or any other operating system, applications hang up from time to time, right? And the, the only way to really rip the cord out and slash the application's throat, as it were, is to, is to is to drop down to a terminal, find the process ID, and then kill TAC9, and then that process ID, and it just it literally unplugs the processor from that process, and it, it just screwed, right? And then it dies, which is good. Uh, KDE has this fantastic little feature where if you hover over any application running on the system bar, I can go up to the upper right-hand corner of the, of the little icon and click on the red X. And that 
terminates no matter how stubborn an application is. When I click that little red X, it turns gray for a second. Then it pops up a window and says, do you want me to terminate the application? I click terminate and that application is gone every single time. Another thing that happens, I'd say twice or three times a week. When I'm doing anything very system intensive, oftentimes the like the 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 uh, the menu bar will freeze up. Right. And that happens on any distribution happens on any desktop environment, but because KRunner is a completely separate process and a totally separate application than the than the system tray, when even when I can't use the super key to launch an application, I can hit alt space, type the name of the application and launch it that way. Alternatively, if KRunner's hung up for whatever reason, I can go use the, 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 the launcher menu. So each one of these components are so modular and so separated from one another that I don't, I never restart my computer. I mean, it runs for, uh, let's see, let's, uh, I'll look, I'll see what the uptime is, but I'd never restart my computer. It just runs and runs and runs. And the reason for that is because if KDE, I just, I can't get enough of it. Does that, uh, does that help you? Well, I'm looking forward to, I'm definitely looking forward to learning those things. And I would definitely be interested in an episode of the Ask Noah show that kind of detailed, uh, how best to optimize KDE like the GNOME one. Yeah, you bet. I, well, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I will start working on putting something like together because I could probably do a better job on KDE than I did on, uh, than I did on GNOME simply because I just, I've really dug my teeth into it. And I it just, it's, it's what I'm going to use for the rest of my life. By the way, my up my uptime on this computer is 198 days. So I don't know what that is. But it's a long time. I just don't restart. And if I do have to restart, it's usually because the battery died, not because there was anything wrong with the computer. That's amazing. But I got to get back to studying for my ham test. So hey, I'll can, let you get back to the phone. Yeah, absolutely. And please give me a call when you pass that ham test. I'd like to know your call sign. And I'd, I'd like to be one of the people to uh, to wish you well in the air. And thanks for calling. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, here's one for you because you deal with the operating system a lot, a lot. I need to, I got in, but I need to activate, from well, XP, hmm. <laughs> and you know, what my, you know what Microsoft is telling me? Is there a way of doing that to get past the 30 days? I got the lead license, all that junk, or am I just out of luck? There, okay, so... <sighs> how to answer this on the year the here here's 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 the truth here's, here's the truth the truth is there is no legitimate way to 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 go about this anymore because they're shutting down all of the activation servers and and, and whatnot so you might you might be able to find some guy in a cubicle at Microsoft that that handles the Windows XP activations for companies that have you know massive contracts with 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 Microsoft and stuff. But for the most part, you're just not going to be able to do it. Here's the here's the way around that though. There are tools upon tools upon tools on the internet. And I can't tell you exactly where to get them. Frankly, I don't even really know. But if you if you uh, just search in Google or search on your favorite place to uh, to download stuff. Uh, XP, you know, authenticator, XP, there, there's, there's all sorts of little utilities that you can download and you click on it and it will change the, the, the windows registry to, to make the computer think that it has been successfully authenticated or successfully uh, registered. 
Well, Bob, I have to take that because my other option would be to go to, you know, welcome to 10 on the, in the virtual box and go, yay, something I don't want to have to do. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's one other option for you. I'll tell you one other option, too. You can also look for something called... Uh, the I can't remember if it's called is it called the corporate version? It's it's the it's the predecessor to the to the volume licensing agreement. But basically, it was a copy of Windows XP that Microsoft released that was sold, and there you put it still has a CD key that you put in. But when you put the CD key in, it didn't require activation at the end. And the idea was if you had a massive uh, organization that had thousands of uh, of machines, they weren't going to require yeah. you to go to, to each one of those machines and, and activate. And so if you can find a copy like that, uh, you, you, that's another way to get around the problem. Well, if I still had my NT, because the stuff I need to run would actually run in NT4, a commercial license stuff, I would go, okay, problem solved. But I was like, okay, I don't have that. Throw it out. Yeah. And then this up on their uh, needs of Microsoft hell in my life because I want to run this. Yeah, I you know what and and the thing is James, I I'm I'm in the same boat just this week literally I was just talking about doing Windows 10's upgrades. Just this week we I was sitting down with a client that has a Windows XP box. It's not connected to the, to the internet or anything like that, but it's running a piece of control software for a machine and we contacted the vendor and we talked and they no, we just don't have anything else. That's what it runs on. It runs on XP, and that's that's where we're at. I'm like, okay, 2019, 2020 and uh, we're still we're still only supporting Windows XP. Sounds good. Hey, thanks for the call, James. I appreciate it. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So I want to talk about this Pinebook Pro. This thing is fantastic. So the first thing I noticed when I pulled it out of the box is the build quality is outstanding. I mean, this thing feels solid. It does not feel like a $200 laptop. It feels like a five dollars or $600 Ultrabook. It feels really good. Um, you open it up. There's no branding on the outside. It's just a plain black uh, case. Even my wife commented, she goes, man, that's a sharp looking computer. I said, yeah, it really is. You open it up. The screen is gorgeous. I mean, I cannot describe to you how sharp and gorgeous the display is. It just looks great. Even compared, like I can say, I had sitting next to my, my, uh, my, my $2,500 ThinkPad. I think that Lenovo did a great job upgrading the IPS display in the X1 as opposed to the, the, the previous X series, like the X2, you know, 250, 260, 270. But this Pinebook has, it looks every bit as good on the display as the ThinkPad. Now, where it kind of falls a little short is in the keyboard and the trackpad. Obviously, as you're typing on it and as you're moving the trackpad around, you can tell it's not a premium trackpad or a premium keyboard, but still way above what you would expect uh, for a $200 computer. Again, if, if you handed me this laptop and said, how much did this cost? I'd put it in the five to $700 range. That would, be, that would have been my guess. Uh, really, really, really solid machine. The other thing, as I mentioned, it kind of saved my bacon, is the fact that it has Type-C charging. So they include a barrel connector and a small little adapter. It does have a Type-C port that allows you to charge, kind of. I say kind of because when I plugged it in, and I was not using a cheap adapter, I was using a very expensive, very well-known, very well-respected uh, brand of Type-C charging, it is, uh, and it was a 90-watt adapter, and I plugged it in, and the, the Pinebook, it would, it would, Say it's charging, then not charging, charging, not charging, charging, not charging, charging, not charging, and then charging, and then it would be fine. But it would play that little game of it would negotiate back and forth. And I found out, I let the battery run all the way dead, and then plug the Type-C charger in, because some laptops, like the Dell XPS, uh, at least the generation that I have, 
if you let it run all the way dead, you're not able to start it back up with the Type-C charge. You have to use the barrel connector first, and then once it gets started, then it can negotiate and ask for the power and all that jazz. Not with the Pine Book, totally dead in the water, plugged the Type-C charger and had to leave it off for a little bit, but it eventually came back to life. So I was really happy to see that. The other thing I really like about it, the kill switches. The kill switches in this thing are a brilliant design. So on the Librem, there's physical hardware kill switches, and that's great. And to a certain degree, it's probably an advantage from a privacy standpoint that you can physically turn the switch from one thing to the other. However, it looks tacky, right? Looks tacky, feels tacky, and it's not something you expect to find in any other computer, so you really start to look like a paranoid freak. Um, but one of the things I really like, and by the way, I am a paranoid freak, so I'm the kind of guy that would be perfectly happy with hardware kills, which is sticking out of my laptop. I mean that in a completely non-pejorative way. But the way that they have done kill switches is actually really ingenious. So the keyboard itself has a controller on it, and that keyboard controller is running firmware. When you press and hold uh, F1, F2, or F3 for 10 seconds, um, the keys in the set direction, the keyboard firmware will physically cut the power to the chosen peripheral. So the implementation is no different than actually cutting the power with a physical switch. The power state settings for each is stored across reboots. So the the privacy switch implementation is highly secure. And since the firmware, it's the firmware that dictates if peripherals have power or not. It's part of the, instead of the Pinebook Pro's operating system, the power state for the last value, the peripheral, can't be overwritten from the operating system. So uh, TLDR if you wanted to hack my computer and you wanted to introduce code that would turn my webcam on so that you could watch me or turn on the microphone so that you could hear me, something that we know the NSA has done, um, you wouldn't be able to do that from the operating system itself, right? So people go to a various website, they use JavaScript injection and a bunch of other things to try to exploit the machine and inject code into the machine that will do malicious things like remotely activate the webcam. Well, that's not possible on the Pinebook Pro because you would have to physically get into the keyboard and operate the and change the firmware, which is not tied to the operating system. So it's it's a really great balance between privacy and functionality. I, I like the fact that I fun, I operate these hardware kill switches the same. Well, there's not really hardware kill switches, but I operate the kill switches the same way that I would just shut my Wi-Fi off or my Bluetooth off, except it's a little bit more intense because you're doing something more intense. You're physically cutting the power. Um, Overall, it, the, the, the machine does have a courage jack, so it has a, a, a headphone jack. It also has a micro SD card, which is interesting because I'm finding that it's very difficult to, if, if it's even possible, I haven't got it to work yet, to install the operating system from a USB flash drive. Basically, all the operating systems have to be flashed from that micro SD card, um, but they include the micro SD card reader. Of course, it has two USB-A ports, one on each side, the Type-C port that I, I, I mentioned, and then a, a headphone jack. Uh, would I suggest this computer for random people, uh, for just an everyday user just wants to walk out and they want a laptop to use? No, I would not. Um, I have had Firefox crash numerous times while I was uh, while I was browsing around, just, just kind of clicking around. Um, could not watch Netflix on it or haven't gotten it to watch Netflix yet. Uh, there is a really neat little application inside of the default desktop environment, which I believe is... Uh, is um, is Mate, um, and it it basically has a little uh, processor uh, clock speed on it, and you can click on it, and you can choose to uh, a conservative or interactive or on demand or performance or power safe, or you can just specify the clock speed. 
And that little applet is just really neat. Uh, the overall design of their default operating system is awesome. Uh, I believe it's Debian underneath. Um, but the, the default applications that come, comes with Chromium, comes with Firefox. I haven't really needed to install anything. Tried to install Vert Manager, found out there wasn't an ARM port for it. Um, but yeah, great little computer. I, I would say that if you're a person that likes to play with technology, that's likes to experiment technology, or you want a second computer, uh, right now I'm using this as one around my house. So if I just need to look something up on the internet, check my email, something like that, I'm using it for that. Um, but it, it's not, it, I don't think it's really ready to, to, to replace somebody's main computer yet. I think they're exceedingly close, though. I think that the experience I've had on this is better than the experience I have on most Chromebooks or definitely better than what I see on the stream PCs, uh, little Windows 10 mini cheapo $150 computers. And like I say, what you're getting for the price is I don't know how they're doing it because this computer is definitely worth more than 200 bucks. I mean, no question about it. I would pay in its current condition with the way that it works. I would easily pay five, $600 for this, and I would still feel like I'm getting a solid deal. Uh, it's a very well-made computer. It works very, very well. Are there some rough edges? Yes, but then again, it is a computer that has been out for you know just a couple of years, so they're still working on it. And this is, I believe, the kind of technology that is going to open up technology to the masses because there are going to be people all over the place that can't afford a quote-unquote expensive computer, but they can afford 200 bucks. And give them some time to smooth out the, a couple of the little rough edges. And this is going to be probably one of the best computers uh, that you can buy for your dollar. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chris, West Virginia, you're on Ask Noah. Hello. On. Pretty good. Hey, th- uh, this is Chris in West Virginia. I don't know if you caught that. I did. Hey, man, what's up? Oh, oh. So uh, I got hit with this question at work today, um, and I have a question for you about door access control systems okay. on a massive scale, mm-hmm. like uh, 24 different sites, uh, hundreds of doors. Sure. Do you have anything open source that you would recommend? Not open source. And No. Not open source. Okay. Uh, there are what plenty. What would you recommend for yeah, something I, that big? I use a, I use a company called Carry Systems, K E R I Systems, and the thing that I like about Carry is a couple of things. So first of all, the company themselves, as far as support and workability, absolutely outstanding to work with. I started working with them back when I was I wanted to learn about access control and and uh, and proximity IDs and stuff like that, and they were more than happy to explain how the technology works and let me hack on it a little bit. And we actually did a thing where I, I found out you can use a ham radio uh, tuned to like 300 and some megahertz, and if you key up, you're able to override it and stuff like that. So they, they And they're really good about it. They're interested in hearing about it. They're interested in feedback. They're interested in improving their products. It's just They're just a fantastic company. Um, they're not not open source. The software only runs on Windows. But then again, you have to think about what you're doing with an access control system, right? You are enrolling keys and turning them on and off. And there's no reason whatsoever that that can't run inside of a VM and just be a thing that you access through RDP through Remina, right? Uh, I don't really have a problem with it. I, I'm perfectly happy with it. And the, the nice thing is, their door controllers are network addressable, so you can put 10,000 door controllers in if you want to, and as long as you're willing to spend the time to assign the IP addresses, and if they're across different sites, then obviously you'll have to set up some VPN stuff, but you can absolutely manage hot. We manage, uh, we manage, a, faci- we manage a facility that has, a, I think, uh, 100, 150 doors, um, 
and or well, I should say access control points because they they're not all doors per se. But uh, but yeah, they it, it works great. Carry systems, and I, I've been very happy with them. It's what's in my house. Do they only work with their own system, or will they integrate with other? And, and, and I know I'm, I'm this is kind of open ended. I don't know nope. what we're running. Uh, I was not privy to that information. Yep. Um, they they will they work with other vendors door controls. Yes, or? the default standard for access control is known as the Wegan interface, and the Wegan interface is kind of the de facto wiring standard for uh, for proximity ID. And and yes, the uh, carry system supports it, and so you can put in a Wegan reader, which is it, most most access control companies are using a a product called HID. Uh, if you look around at most of the cards that are that are out there, it's it's based on the HID uh, system and uh, carry it talks to it. So you can put an HID reader in if you want to, uh, or you can use their readers. I think their readers are better quality. I I don't have to hold the key there for a second. I can just I, if it's anywhere in the vicinity, it will uh, it'll read it. Um, so I like their keys better, but uh, but it's certainly backwards. It's certainly compatible with with open industry standards. Okay, Do you, um, and so I would assume they're not uh, they're not locked into uh, like Windows Seven, Windows Server two thousand eight, no. which is what our current system is. We cannot upgrade the system no. without spending tens of no. They don't even they don't even have software licensing. You can they don't even have software licensing. I could send you the software and you could install. I mean, you won't have anything to talk to, but I can send you the software and you can install it and run it on fifty computers if you want to. They don't care. Okay. Well, that that definitely is something that, that I will look into that. So this is something I first could personally set up myself, though. Yes. In fact, they have something called the uh, the Carry Blue, which I haven't played with, but it is a stripped down version for consumers. You just replace the door handle, and then instead of running software on a computer, you just run an app on your phone, and uh, and it uses Bluetooth to do no the authentication. Way. Yeah. I, like I said, I can't vouch for it because I've not played with it. I just I saw that it was that my rep emailed me and said, "Here's a product we have," and I went, "Oh, that's cool." Okay. Uh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. I Eight fifty. You were the man to call. <laughs> I try my best. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. Colonel, I got about a minute. You're on the air. Hey Noah, how are you doing today? Pretty good. So you seem to be getting to the end of your shows and have a lot more to say. Have you ever considered uh, almost like a LUP style after show? I have. In fact, we've talked about extending this. Uh, We've ext- we've talked about extending the show another hour. So instead of being one hour, it would be two, and the first hour would be uh, covering stories and 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 talking about things. And the second hour, we would reserve specifically for community stuff. Okay, and I've got one other question. You bet. When are you going to have a uh, Ask Noah Space Age stool? <laughs> I am working on the space age stool. In fact, uh, there's a there's a funny there's a, there, there's going to be something funny coming uh, in Destination Linux. My wife and I are working on a secret project, but I, I can't spoil it on this show, so you'll have to wait. All right. Well, I listened to that show as well, so um, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate it. I appreciate the call. 855 450 No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Project Triton switched from BSD over to Linux, and uh, they are finally have their beta release available. It's over at projectastritan.org. 
Org. Uh, it was built on Void and runs ZFS on root. So it's a fantastic file system and something you could really trust for your data. It also has a ZFS boot environment. And since Lumina is the default desktop, you're able to access older snapshots directly from the file manager. This is the kind of stuff that I, I look at and I go, this is why ZFS is important and this is why we need ZFS and Linux because this kind of stuff is amazing. So the breakdown of why Trident decided to go over to Void uh, from BSD is available in the show notes. We'll have a link for you. I invite you to check that out. But right now, since they have the beta image out, they're really hoping to get some people to bang on it and let them know what you find. Because, you know, they, they're they really passionate about this project. And, and one of the people that works on it is our executive producer, JT Pennington. He sent this over to me and said, man, this, is, this project is going places. So if you're looking for something to play with, if you're looking for a project you kind of want to dig sink your teeth into and get to know a little bit, check out Project Triton. I sure am. And the more I use things like PFSense and FreeBSD, the more I like the design philosophy of those uh, those BSD guys. So I'm kind of starting to cut them a little bit of slack. And so now that there's a there's a distribution that's based on my favorite kernel, I have to try it. Hey, did you know if you want more information, like I said, I've referenced it a thousand times to the show notes. Get Go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m.